brief word from one of our sponsors. In the docudrama The Social Dilemma on Netflix, tech insiders explain how social media is engineered to exploit users' data for profit, sounding the alarm on their own creations. They call it surveillance capitalism. I doubt many people are okay with knowing their data is being harvested so tech billionaires can get even richer. That's why I put a layer of protection around my data with ExpressVPN. Every time you use the internet, big tech companies mine your data by tracking your searches, messages, and video history. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, it hides your IP address, which websites can use to personally identify you. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. You still need to be careful with what you share on social media, but ExpressVPN can make your web browsing more anonymous. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and prying eyes. Many VPNs slow down your internet, but not ExpressVPN. It's incredibly fast, easy to use, just tap one button and you're protected. So if you don't like the idea of tech companies exploiting your personal information, then visit expressvpn.com slash masses, as in huddled masses, right now, and you can get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash masses to protect your data. Go to expressvpn.com slash masses to learn more. Hello, I'm Alex Hannaford, and this is Battleground. Hello, I'm producer Pete. Alex, tell us about today's podcast. I believe this is one of your favourite topics, something you always talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Today, Pete, we're talking about climate change. Climate change. Climate change. Climate change. Climate change. Climate plan. Which, for some inexplicable reason has seemed to have polarized the, the globe global warming and that and a lot of it's a hoax it's a hoax seems to me like just a lot of people that don't want to stop burning coal but anyway let's get to the crux of it pete what's the crux of it how are we going to address climate change in today's podcast well look you see i this is this is my take on a lot of a lot of this um is is why you know it just annoys me pete when you pete, uninformed friends post crap on facebook and I just think you have no knowledge of this subject. Why should I listen to you? Is that sorry? Is that addressed to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're always posting crap on Facebook, Pete. <laughs> All your pictures of surfing in Wales and stuff like that, and telling me that climate right. change doesn't doesn't exist. Actually, no, you're not. <laughs> but you know, here's the thing: the vast majority of climate scientists are in agreement that climate change is happening. And it is largely man-made. So today, what I wanted to do is speak to a woman called Dr. Victoria Herman, who is the president and managing director of the Arctic Institute. My take on this, Pete, is, you know, let's not listen to friends on Facebook. Let's talk to the experts. Well, and and also, you know, with these eight episodes in Battleground, I was quite keen to get a range of opinion and not just people, you know, on the left who maybe agree completely with your 
opinions on things. I wanted to get more of a balance. And you were, you just said, look, I do not want a climate change denier. No. You wanted an expert. There's no point going down that route. It's settled. It's settled. We don't want to give the David Ikes of this world uh, a platform. And I'm really, really absolutely firm on that. So let's talk to uh, somebody who's devoted their life to science and who can sort of demystify the science for us? Because a lot of this is to do with people just either deliberately misinterpreting it or just not understanding it. You know, we are generally speaking pretty scientifically illiterate. Although I, I know we've got a lot better, you know, as the years have progressed. But um, Victoria is going to demystify it for us. She's testified before the U.S. Senate. She was named one of the most hundred influential people in climate policy worldwide last year by Apolitical. Um, and you know, let's face it: the California is burning. We've got huge wildfires. You've got disinformation by oil companies. Um, there is still a big sort of lobbying factor when it comes to uh, uh, climate science. There's also a lot of people still who just are denying what is clearly happening. And so, you know, let's talk to the expert. We're all in lockdown, so it kind of makes sense to sort of ask whether you're busier than normal or has the pandemic overtaken climate change in the national discussion? Climate change continues to Despite the pandemic, and we've seen that this fire and hurricane season, it doesn't matter if there's a global pandemic happening, it continues on, it continues to intensify fires, it continues to make hurricanes more extreme, and it continues to endanger lives across the world at the same time as a global pandemic does. This morning, dozens of wildfires burning across our state, forcing evacuations and causing some very bad air quality. Pretty much everything here is burned to the ground. The death toll from unrelenting western wildfires continues to climb. Officials have confirmed a firefighter was killed. You mentioned the wildfires. California has had record levels of heat. Um, and at the time of recording this podcast, it's ablaze with wildfires. Donald Trump uh, has previously cast doubt on his own government's report warned of the devastating effects of climate change. And now he's saying California wildfires are down to bad forest management. Trump again blamed poor forest management, not climate change. If you give a climate arsonist four more years in the White House, why would anyone be surprised if we have more America blaze? Why has climate change become so politicized and part of the culture war? Because we have experienced decades of disinformation campaigns by oil and gas companies. Proponents of the global warming theory say that higher levels of greenhouse gases are causing world temperatures to rise and that burning fossil fuels is the reason. But scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect the global climate. It is not natural for us to believe or not believe in science, right? This was a marketing campaign that a lot of Americans fell for, that starting in the 1970s, oil companies like Exxon continued to create an atmosphere where we questioned climate science. They understood that climate change would endanger their profits because we would have to move away from consuming oil and gas to renewable energy. And they poured millions of dollars into convincing the American public that they should not believe climate scientists 
and that climate change was a political issue, that you should align with your own party on whether you believed in climate change or not. And they supported that with lobbying and putting money into politics. So where we are today isn't happenstance. It is because of an incredibly effective disinformation campaign that we're still seeing played out on places like Facebook today. Yeah, that was interesting. You, when you were talking about Exxon, you, you were sort of talking in the past tense about the sort of 1970s and 80s. But I, in fact, I just read a story um, yesterday, I think it was in the New York Times, about how BP and European oil companies were investing in renewables at, at an accelerating rate, but US oil companies were still reluctant to do that and still invested in fossil fuels. Why is that? Why is there this reluctance? There is a path dependence in much of our thinking in the world, right? We don't like to break from what we have done in the past and start anew. It's scary. We don't know if it's going to work. When you think of oil and gas companies, they have had the better part of 40 years to make that transition. And at every point, the heads of these companies have lacked the courage to create new paths. And I think that's what it boils down to, right? A lack of courage and a lack of investing in our collective future for a safer planet, um, because it does come with a significant shift in resources for infrastructure, a significant shift away from the millions of dollars they have spent on disinformation campaigns and on lobbying, and a realignment to a green future, one where we are investing in environmental justice and renewable energy. According to a study from Yale and George Mason University, 70% of Americans say global warming is happening. And 57% believe it's mostly caused by human activities. 72% of Americans believe climate change is happening. And a majority believe that it is already harming people in the United States. People in America want climate action. They see these wildfires in the West, more extreme hurricanes, and they know that this is our future. You said 72% believe in it. What about the, so the 28% that don't? Tell them now what they would have to go without. How would this hurt them? In order to really, really tackle climate change, there's going to be have to, have to be some sort of pain. I mean, we're talking about lowering our um, reliance on fossil fuels and all the rest of it. What does that look like in the next 10 years? What, what are we going to have to do without that we rely on so much now? There is going to have to be some reinvestments and some shifting of our economy to get to carbon neutrality by 2030, right? In the next 10 years, we are going to have to have a massive investment in new infrastructure and also a massive investment in updating our current infrastructure to withstand these extreme climate events. And that just means more jobs. And I think even if those 20% of people don't believe man-made climate change is happening, they do believe in recoveries from recessions. They believe in investing in American innovation. They believe in investing in job creation and in the health of every American community. And that's what climate action looks like, right? In June, the Russian Arctic reached 100.4 Fahrenheit. The official reading was 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 32 degrees hotter than the normal high temperature. The highest temperature 
in the Arctic since record keeping began. I know you visit. When, I, want, I want you to take you back to when you first saw visible signs of change in the Arctic and the sort of visceral kind of reaction you had. Can you paint a picture about what you actually saw? In the Arctic, climate change impacts everything. It impacts the landscape upon which you walk. It impacts the horizon that you look out to. It impacts people's lives in every aspect. And when you work in the Arctic and alongside traditional knowledge holders, indigenous leaders across the North, you both visibly see the impacts of climate change and you listen to the heart-wrenching stories and wisdom of residents of the Arctic and how their lives have changed. You walk and you see thawing permafrost. The permafrost is thawing, presenting multiple threats. Ground that has been frozen for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, that is slowly releasing its cold, right? You can feel it emanating from that thawing permafrost because of warmer air and sea temperatures. You look out to where there should be ice along the shoreline, where communities rely on that ice to make sure big waves crash far out rather than directly on their homes and school buildings, and the ice isn't there. And you listen to Indigenous leaders and traditional knowledge holders about how that's impacting food security, how it is impacting traditional hunting and fishing, how it is impacting them imagining a future for themselves, for their children, for their grandchildren, and ultimately how it is forcing communities along coastlines and on permafrost to face the impossible choice of whether to stay or whether to move, to be displaced, migrate, and relocate to a new home, somewhere where their ancestors never lived and where they might not have access to the hunting and fishing that they rely on. A brief word from one of our sponsors. Do you get bored with your workouts? If you're looking for a workout that keeps you engaged, learning, excited, and motivated, a workout that's never boring and always challenging, you've got to check out Fight Camp. Fight Camp brings the boxing gym to your living room. They provide all the gear and top trainers, everything you need, in fact, to get great workouts in. The boxing workout's always been ranked as one of the best ways to get in shape, and it's one of the most fun ways to combine cardio and strength training. Fight Camp brings the boxing gym to you with a mix of cardio and conditioning for a full body workout. It comes with all the gear you need, the best freestanding punching bag on the market, great boxing gloves, quick hand wraps, and their unique punch tracking sensors that show you real-time progress and stats on any iOS device. It's great for kids too. Fight Camp offers kids gloves because it's meant to be enjoyed by the whole family. If you're new to boxing, their 12-week starter program teaches you the fundamentals of boxing while you get a great workout in every time. You can access over 400 different workouts for all fitness levels and skills, with four new ones every week. Fight Camp offers flexible financing for as low as 0% APR. And right now, as a limited time offer, you can try Fight Camp for 30 days with their money-back guarantee. Just go to fightcamp.com slash masses, as in huddled masses. That's right, try Fight Camp for 30 days, and if you don't love it, they'll refund your money. Train like a fighter and turn your sweat into results. To try Fight Camp for 30 days, go to joinfightcamp.com slash masses. Is the problem 
a disbelief in climate change from some quarters, or is it an actual reluctance to accept what's actually needed to reverse it? According to Axios, climate change is the easiest news to fake. And that's partly because climate change is intangible and sometimes a controversial topic. Climate denial comes in many flavors. There are some individuals that do not believe in man-made climate change because they have fallen victim to disinformation campaigns and the polarization of climate change as a political and not scientific issue, who flat out deny anything to do with climate change because they view it as something that is to the left, right? That is not something conservatives believe in. There are also people who look at climate change and think it's too big, right? I cannot deal with this in my day-to-day life. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sort of doomsday scenario that they, that they just they can't uh, get their head around. Yeah, people need to drive their kids to school. They need to take out the trash. They need to go to work. And looking into the future and seeing an apocalypse that is climate change is far too much. It is devastating for them to imagine that their children themselves will live in a world that will continually get worse because of the decisions we made. And that ultimately, we need systemic change from the top down that's met by bottom up change. But we need both. And looking at our government that doesn't believe in man-made climate change, you can feel pretty hopeless and pretty helpless. But being hopeless, being helpless doesn't help anyone, right? Let's go back to Trump. In 2013, he tweeted, ice storms roll in from Texas to Tennessee. I'm in Los Angeles and it's freezing. Global warming is a total and very expensive hoax. In the East, it could be the coldest New Year's Eve on record. Perhaps we could use a little bit of that good old global warming that our country, but not other countries, was going to pay trillions of dollars to protect against. The president has tweeted climate change skepticism at least 115 times, including a claim that the concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese. How much damage does a tweet like that do from somebody who would go on three years later to become president? We're seeing the damage that that tweet has done in real time. We have seen it over the past four years by having a federal administration that has not acted on climate change and has not kept Americans safe. We have seen it play out by the continual spread of disinformation by this president, by a lack of confidence in science that we're seeing play out in this pandemic and the health and well-being and very lives of Americans. We're seeing it play out by every year not investing in the solutions we already have to make our infrastructure more resilient, to make plans that will move us away from fossil fuels. We're seeing it play out in the wildfires and a president that doesn't have empathy or intellect to address those fires. We're seeing it every day and it's making every one of us less safe in this climate changed world. I think you answered my next question, which was what's Trump's record on climate been like? A big fat F, right? (laughs) He has not acted on climate change He has abdicated America's leadership role in the world on climate change, 
And he has failed the American people in investing in new jobs, in investing in people's health and well-being, in investing in our future. Not only has he not acted on climate change, but over the past four years, he has rolled back a hundred environmental regulations. The Trump administration moved forward Wednesday to weaken the 50-year-old National Environmental Policy Act, which mandates environmental reviews of major federal infrastructure projects. All of those impacts from the water that we drink, the air that we breathe, the health of this nation. And as we are now living through a global pandemic, we are seeing the cascading impacts of that, where you have not one existential disaster occurring, but you have multiple disasters because of the decisions that this president has made. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. The United States joins the only two countries that did not sign the agreement to cut greenhouse gas emissions. They are Syria and Nicaragua. Um, you called Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord reprehensible. Why was that? The Paris Climate Agreement was this incredible moment in our recent history where countries across the world came together decided that climate change was an existential threat and that we would lead uh, a future that was safe for everyone on this planet. An enduring agreement that reduces global carbon pollution and sets the world on a course to a low carbon future. And at that moment, the United States was a leader in that agreement, right? We had a role in shaping it and we had a role in implementing it. The Trump administration's decision to pull out of Paris not only uh, creates a symbol for the rest of the world that the United States is no longer a leader, that we are not interested in creating a future that is safe for everyone, but it also signals to every other country that we are not listening to the most up-to-date science, that we do not care about our residents, that we are seeing the uh, information that we can change our economy, we can change our energy systems, we have the tools, this will actually benefit the economy, and we're throwing that away to instead invest in an old, outdated system that is benefiting an increasingly few number of Americans. After um, you know, saying it was reprehensible that Trump is pulling out of Paris, you went on to say that we can't give up hope. How are you still hopeful? And also, how can both of those things be true? How can it be you know, a disaster that he's pulled out, but actually it's not the end of the world? Climate change will continue to happen. The ice will still melt. The permafrost will still thaw. We will still have more intense and extreme hurricanes and wildfires. We cannot stop climate change. But every year that we don't act, every degree that we allow our world to warm is more devastation, is billions of dollars lost, is millions of lives lost in our future. And that's a pretty good motivator to continue acting on climate change. You might look at the federal government and say, they're not acting, so I have no hope. But 
you look below that at the states, the provinces, the cities, the towns, the villages in this country and abroad that are doing everything they can to find a way to carbon neutrality, to act on climate change, to keep their residents safe, that's pretty hopeful. And then you go down one more to the millions of individuals like me who have dedicated their careers to climate action. You might not see those millions of people that are dedicating themselves to climate action, but they're there. They're working day in and day out to find the solutions to implement them and to keep our world safe. Young people are disproportionately more interested in climate change. And those who were 14 years old four years ago can now vote in November. Are young people what the climate crisis hangs on here? In recent months, millions of young people around the world have taken part in protests, demanding climate change be treated like a crisis. The climate crisis hangs on every single voter. It hangs on every young voter coming out to vote for climate candidates across the ticket from the presidential election down to your mayor of your city or town, right? Young voters have inherited a hot earth. They have inherited a world where they know every year will look worse than the year they are currently living in because of climate change. They know that a vote for someone who does not believe in man-made climate change is cementing a future that will be significantly worse than what they are living in now versus investing in a future by voting for climate candidates that will provide them with green jobs, that will provide them with healthy communities, that will provide them with a livable earth. Young voters are only the start, right? Every voter has a stake in this election because every voter lives on this planet. If you are 18, if you are 48, if you are 78, you will be impacted by climate change. And that means that every vote should be a climate vote this November. That's why today I'm releasing my plan to mobilize millions of jobs by building sustainable infrastructure and and, and an equitable, clean energy future. If Biden gets in, how will things change? If Biden wins the election, we can expect a green recovery from this pandemic, which means that millions of people will get jobs that are good paying work with dignity. It means that my family will be safer in the next four years. It means that we will invest in infrastructure that can better withstand fires and hurricanes and floods and hailstorms. It means $3 trillion of investing in our future. And it means making sure that America is a leader in the world, that other countries not only respect the United States in its bold climate action, but that they're working with the United States to envision and implement the solutions we need for a bright future. If you were advising Biden on his climate strategy, his climate plan, is there anything in his platform that you would change, that you would do more of, that you would do differently? The Biden climate change plan has an incredible amount of 
different solutions put into it, right? You have renewable energy, you have more resilient infrastructure, you have electric cars, you have bold international leadership. The climate plan for President Biden gets an A in my book. If I were to add something, it would be to create more robust infrastructure to uh, address the climate displacement, migration, and relocation that we are seeing today and will continue to see into the future. As sea levels rise, as forest fires rage in this country, millions will move. They will have to leave their homes that they have always known and seek safer, drier, higher ground somewhere else in this country. And we need to be ready for those climate migrants to uh, show up in new cities, new towns, maybe building new uh, villages and ensuring that the federal government can support them. If there is four more years of Trump, is all lost? We will still have that bottom up action. We could still boldly act at the state level, at the city level, at the individual level. We could advocate for change from our Senate, from Congress, but we can only do so much. If we have four more years of a Trump administration, we will see more and more billion-dollar extreme weather events. We will see more and more Americans whose lives are lost because of climate change. We will see more and more of the world, of the ecosystems that we rely on, of the beauty that our home planet has lost because of this precedent. Often climate change activists or scientists like yourself are accused of doom mongering. Um, but over the course of the conversation, you've sounded positive and hopeful. We haven't, you know, we haven't passed the point of no return. There is, there is hope. It's going to come from the grassroots and it's hopefully going to come from the top down as well. Am I right in that sort of assessment? Are you hopeful for the future? There is a delicate balance in climate emotions. Am I fearful? Yes, I'm terrified of not acting on climate change. Do I have grief for what we have already lost? Yes. Absolutely. Am I at times feeling helpless, feeling hopeless when I look at the lack of what we have done? Yeah, it's devastating. But I look around and I see the local leaders, the indigenous leaders that have stood up and acted boldly on climate change. I look at the youth that I work with in the Arctic, in this country, and how they are acting boldly in demanding climate action. I look at cities, at states. I look at how many Americans have changed their minds on climate change over the past five years. And all of that gives me the courage to get up tomorrow and continue to find ways to move us closer to a healthy future. Victoria, that was really fascinating. Thank you so much for chatting to me. Thanks for having me. Climate, Alex. Your favourite subject, your go-to subject when we're in the pub and you're boring everyone to death. I don't think I've ever 
ever spoken about climate change in the pub with you, Pete. <laughs> Did you learn stuff from Victoria that you're going to relay to me in six months from now and pass it off as your own? Yeah, I'll pretend you weren't there at the time, but I often do that. <laughs> yeah, so anything about sort of the, the culture wars and divisions in, in the States? You know, um, I think that the really important thing to remember when it comes to climate change and this election, and why are we even doing this as an episode, is this. Um, at the end of last year, a survey asked voters between the ages of 18 and 29 about policy and political issues. And 80% said that climate change was a major threat to humanity. And, and then there's this Harvard poll, which found that young voters cared about stopping climate change, even if it meant damage to the economy. So you know, here's the thing. If young people vote in the record numbers that we are hearing they are going to and already are because of early voting, then climate is going to be a, is a key motivation. They know Trump's record on climate and they know what's at stake. So we could see climate if Biden gets in, you know, and he recognizes that climate was a motivating factor for a lot of his voters, you know, maybe he'll do something about it. And in terms of resolution, anything you heard from Victoria that was positive? Well, I just, don't, I just don't think this has become such a divisive issue as well. Like all these things we're talking about, that it is bonkers to me that it is, but it is. And I don't think that this election is going to change anything. You know, if Biden gets in and starts to sort of um, do stuff about the fossil fuel industry, um, then I don't think he's going to sort of win many Trump supporters over. This is divisive. I think that what could happen in the future is that if the GOP realise if they lose, um, if Trump loses the election and the GOP has this sort of huddled meeting where they say, what the hell do we do now? And they realise that maybe a moderate candidate is the answer, someone who's fiscally conservative, but kind of much more moderate on the issues we've been discussing, including climate, then they could probably in the future win over a lot of voters who they might have lost this time around. All right, Al, we're back next week. We are. Good to talk to you, Pete. And good to talk to you. Give You're me looking some credits. really well. Thank you. Give me some credits. 